On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be chatting about photo radar. Some counselors want to bring it back, especially for the Red Hill Creek Expressway and the link. Too many drivers driving too quickly. But do we want it? Is it going to help? And is an estimated 13,000 tickets a day at every single photo radar stop sign that this is going to be a cash grab. We'll talk about that. We're going to talk about Canada's food guide. Right now we have four foods on the food guide. Apparently we're going up to 28. That'll be easy to remember, huh? And we talk about the Baseball Hall of Fame and the steroid guys. Some of the guys who were said to be very involved in the steroid era are looking like they may actually get into baseball's Hall of Fame. Is that a good thing or are you opposed to it? All that coming up here on the podcast. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. If you want to fire up a conversation that is bound to get people arguing, and there's lots of topics that'll do that. I mean, politics, start there. Anything to do with politics, you can start a fight if you want. But we're not here to start a fight tonight. We're just wanting to have a good discussion. It just happens to be a topic that gets people heated on both sides. That would be photo radar. Remember photo radar? That old plan that existed back in the Bob Ray days, the good old days of Bob Ray. Hmm? Yeah, well, photo radar is now back on the table because there are apparently, and my next guest in just a moment will, I'm sure, be able to explain this a little more fully. There are people who, it seems, have a difficult time keeping their foot off the gas pedal going along the link and down the Red Hill Creek or up the Red Hill Creek. I'm assuming mostly down. Anyway. Speeding apparently is a problem on those two arteries in this city. And so a number of counselors, including my next guest, are looking to bring back photo radar and use that as a, I won't use the word weapon because maybe it is a weapon. I don't know. Let me, let me ask Sam Marula, counselor for Ward 4 in the city who is in favor of this. Uh, Counselor, thanks for doing this today. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Is that a fair word? Is weapon a fair word or does that suggest something else? No, I would say a tool um, okay. more than a weapon. Yeah, but uh, Scott, I think the bottom line is um, I don't think anybody uh, can disagree that the road has become really a a problem in that we've had so many tragedies and we have continued accidents and we have continued out of out of uh, um, out of province truck traffic and basically it's at a point where it's been consistent and predictable in it being somewhat dangerous and. Too many people at that point try to point fingers at the design and the way the pavement is is um, is, is poured and um, the asphalt and we need a wall to protect people from themselves and all that nonsense. When in reality, if the road is used as prescribed at 90 kilometers an hour, uh, it's a very safe road. So when we're dealing with all of this nonsense, and people aren't willing to take responsibility for their own for their own behavior. And and, and the, the studies show uh, that the speeding issue on that road, both the Link and the Red Hill Valley, is at a crisis level. Um, that uh, the vast majority of all the tragedies on that road is all related to speed and driver behavior. Um, then, as legislators, uh, we have a responsibility to ensure. Uh, that we make decisions that are not only in the best interest of the city, but that of every individual, particularly those that are law-abiding citizens. And I don't know why anybody that's traveling that road and traveling the speed limit would be concerned about photo radar, unless, of course, they are the problem. So 
granted, uh, some people might consider it a cash grab, which is nonsense because it will be fully signed and illuminated and warnings will be quite prevalent. Um, and there's a direct correlation between photo radar and a decrease of speed, which in this particular case would be a decrease in tragedies and a decrease in, in, in uh, accidents. Uh, it's responsible. I, I can assure you that every time I've pitched this idea, we haven't received approval from the province yet, that things have changed since 1995. We have a culture right now of fast, furious, and stupid people driving at ridiculous speeds. I'm not sure if it's related to the, the quality of the engineering of vehicles and not recognizing how fast people are going, but we have too many people that are speeding to get to stop signs and going through those and stop lights and not really taking into account all other modes of transportation, that being pedestrians and cyclists. Um, and we have more pedestrians die um, in the city um, than we do murders. And yet people think it's okay to speed. And, and frankly, um, I, I think we, we need to combat this, not through weapons, but through tools. And this is just one tool where I think could be put throughout the city, particularly in, in community safety zones, and now, again, if we, if we set that, like, please do have some discretion. So you won't get pulled over if you're going in 95 in a 90. But you definitely will be if you're going 105 or 110 or 120 in a 90. But I think, Sam, that's one of the concerns that people have about photo radar is there isn't discretion. There isn't human discretion like there would be for an officer. And so well, if it's 80 and you go 80, well, and that's fine. And, and what would be the suggested? Because I don't remember what it was like back when it was around in the, in, with the NDP in the 90s. It's a whole different, a whole different model wax today. We're not in the same mindset that we were in the 90s. And... In, in a lot of ways that we live. And speed today is far more chronic and, and, and far problem, more problematic than it was in the 90s. I can assure you of that. Uh, just as in the last 20 years, you, you speak to any counselor, any elected official, you speak to the police. The last 20 years, we've had a, a crisis or an epidemic when it comes to speeding. And that's why we have so many traffic calming measures that we've had to implement that people complain about as well, whether that be narrowing the roads or speed humps or or pedestrian crosswalks and all these things don't happen because there isn't something contributing that leads to it happening and the reality is that the road in itself is if used as prescribed is 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 safe you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml Talking about photo radar, this is one of those topics that uh, maybe more people are open to it today. I'm not sure. Back once upon a time, as we've been talking about, certainly didn't hit the popularity meter. Came in, got taken away because people apparently hated it. Uh, Councillor Sam Marula joins us. He is obviously a proponent of this. And Councillor, one of the reasons... And you said that, you know, these things can be adjusted. So if someone's going five kilometers over, maybe 10 kilometers over, it's not going to be... We can adjust this to be at a reasonable number. And and I think right. that's one of the concerns people have, because in this report or in this discussion that came out at council, the number that was thrown out there was that every single photo radar unit would generate 13,000 tickets a day. And I think a lot of people looked at that and went, holy cow, are we ever looking at a massive cash grab? That's where the cash grab idea, I think, comes from. Uh, hence, you better slow down. And if you slow down, then it's all good to go. I, 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 unless you're planning on speeding, I'm not sure why people are concerned about it. And if 
if you now are aware of it being there and now you're not going to speed, then we're helping people protect themselves from themselves. So again, it creates awareness about speed. It creates awareness about the penalties. And we're hoping that no one gets tickets and everyone goes the speed limit. But if you don't, you will be penalized, just like anything else we do uh, in a in a a civilized uh, society. What would the do you know what the money would go to? Because especially at the outset, this would be a lot of money coming into the city coffers. It would go back into roads. Uh, that would be our primary objective. Normally, if you look at some of the um, the, the red light camera monies, we've used for capital projects uh, in public works. One okay, so I, I am I am mixed on this one, I, and I'll be honest with you that there is one part of this that I always have great difficulty with when the photo radar comes along, and that is the idea that is my belief that once once cameras are put up along the road, the idea would be that police officers who might have been assigned to do that will be sent elsewhere. So you would only have the cameras and the other things, the other bad driving issues, the following too closely, the wrong lane changes, all that other stuff suddenly now is not caught. How do you make sure that this doesn't just become all about speeding and not about the other stuff and that the police still do the other things and don't say we're going to assign them elsewhere because we're covered now? But Scott, it's all relative. So if if you're following too close and traveling at 90 kilometers an hour um, and and you get into uh, an accident, the the impact and the outcome of that accident is far less severe than if you're traveling 140 kilometers an hour. So the number one killer on speed is speed uh, and distracted driving. So in essence, everything is related to speed. So the slower you're going, the safer you are, even if you get into a collision. Uh, and d- you can program it. So we can. that's a discussion we have to have. No one is saying that's going to be zero tolerance and everyone... Going, if you're going 91, you're going to be getting a ticket. So you can set it at 10, you can set it at 12 kilometers. That gives them that discretion. But uh, again, you have to find that limit. And as long as you're going to speed limit, you have, need not worry. Uh, that's the bottom line, just like any other law that we have. Let me take that last point you just made, and you've made it a couple times now, and it's a fair point. Let me let me just take that one idea, because I even if there are people out there who support that concept, that as long as you don't speed, you're fine, and I think they're probably, to be fair, I think there are, are people out there, and probably many people who feel that way. Can you maintain the public support for this, though, once a whole bunch of people start getting tickets? I think there'd be a lot of people who will be okay with this until a couple tickets show up in the mail, and they start going, ah, I'm not sure anymore. How do you maintain this? Yeah, you, well, it's called public safety. As long as you have a fair warning system and the signage and it's illuminated and people are warned ahead of time, um, there should be no excuse for this meeting unless you're, you're truly irresponsible. So you're going to have all of the warnings uh, in advance of the, of the actual photo radar itself. So if you're distracted and you don't notice it, then that's problematic in itself. So, again, uh, we're just trying to protect people from themselves for the most part. And... The road, as you know, um, is a dangerous one if it's not used as prescribed. So we have to force people to, uh, to use it as prescribed. The other component is that Tylenol, if used as prescribed, is a, is a heck of a tool to mitigate a lot of things from a health perspective. But if you take the entire bottle, it's going to be tragic. So, again, we don't need to warn people, but that, although there are warnings on the bottle, in this particular case, we're just simply saying it's a problem. We have a solution. There's a direct correlation between photo radar and people slowing down and protecting themselves from themselves. Hence, we need to legislate it accordingly. 
Counselor for award for Counselor Sam Rule. That Tylenol example, by the way, may come in really handy for people who get some photo radar tickets. <laughs> they may want to know how well, to use the Tylenol. Keep their eyes up, not on their phones, <laughs> looking at the signs, and they'll be warned ahead of time, and they can slow down. Thank you, Counselor. Always appreciate it. You're very welcome. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you have grown up, well, obviously you have. Uh, I was going to say, if you've grown up in the last number of decades, presumably you've been around for the last number of decades, some of you. But if you've been around during that time at all, which again is all of you, you're probably familiar with the Canada Food Guide. Now, the Canada Food Guide has been our model of what to eat and how to eat and how to eat healthy for, I'm not even sure how long though, but it's been a long, long time. And it's the one, and you can repeat this after me, play along with me if you want. It has four main food groups. Again, join me on this one. Vegetables and fruit, grain products, milk and alternatives, and right, meat and alternatives. That is the other one. Well, that is then. This is now. Rumors are, reports are, this is soon going to be no more. We're going to have a new food guide, a brand new. Health Canada is going to have a brand new food guide because I guess this one's been all wrong. The new food guide, the more healthy one, the better one for us, says there aren't four main food groups that we should be balancing around. There are, ready for this, 28. Let me bring in a good friend of ours, favorite guest, Sylvain Charlebois, who's a professor at Dalhousie University, conducts research in the broad area of food distribution and food safety, other things related to food. Uh, Dr. Charlebois, thanks for doing this today. Not a problem. A main food group chart with 28 foods is obviously going to be very catchy and easy for everybody to remember off the top of their head, right? <laughs> now, good luck with that. Yeah, uh, that's what yeah, I'm thinking. It, I mean, I think I think uh, people at Health Canada want want to make our lives uh, more complicated. <laughs> uh, it is yeah. it is a lot, of course. Uh, when I actually give talks about about food and I ask people what the four food groups are, you can see that some are actually struggling to to come up with four, four, let alone <laughs> twenty eight. That's a lot. But I mean, the focus, the, 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 really, the difference with this next one is is going to be about uh, about ingredients instead of or nutrients instead of just looking at products. So. We, we know our four uh, food groups, uh, milk, dairy, uh, uh, meat substitutes, grains, and, uh, and obviously fruits and vegetables. Uh, they're going to be looking at fibers and proteins, so looking at really what we need. Uh, so, there, yes, it is getting more complicated, but at the same time, I, I, I mean, the fundamental principle of of the food guide that will be released next week, I think, I believe, will be all about flexibility and making sure that anyone uh, with any sort of professional uh, diet actually can see themselves into the next food guide. The one that we have now is uh, is simple, but goodness, outdated. Well, okay, let's go back because I'm not sure I completely understand where this came from, why we needed a food guide, who came up with this, when it happened. Can you take a few moments and explain the origin of this and why we have this? Oh, absolutely. So uh, we have to go back to 1942. So in the middle of the Second World War, uh, so food, obviously food security was a big issue. It's still an issue today, but 
uh, it's nowhere near what the what how the issue was then in 1942 in the middle of the Second World War. Also, agriculture represented a big portion of our economy, about 30, 32 percent, versus say 12 today, and so very different uh, context. And at, in those days, uh, they, I mean, the government wanted to stimulate our economy, and there's no better way to to do that than to showcase what we grow, what we do, and that's exactly. What happened in 1942, if you actually look at the food guide then, it was all about patriotism and celebrating what we do here in Canada. Well, it's hard not to look at the old, the, the one we still have for the next little while. Vegetables and fruit, grain products, milk and alternatives, and meat and alternatives, and say, yeah, that is Canada's agricultural output. Well, there's nothing oh, in there absolutely. that says, you know, crazy things that you would only get in Africa or Asia or wherever else. This is so whether this is ideal for our body scientifically and nutritionally, it certainly is ideal for the Canadian agricultural industry. That's right. And so our food guide never departed uh, from from that initial principle and uh, and today we have a food guide which is 12 years old now that still really uh, embraces that, that philosophy. But uh, two things have changed, uh, our economy and, and lifestyles. And, uh, and a lot of people have argued that, uh, that the current food guide doesn't embrace uh, any of those two dimensions. And on top of that, science. We know more about food than ever. And again, if you look at the four food groups, I mean, there are many, many more options, uh, healthier options out there that are not even mentioned in the current food guide. Food guide. So was this initial food guide, the one we're talking about with the four, was this based on science and nutrition, or in your mind, was it based entirely on what was available during the war when this thing started? Well, I don't think that, uh, that uh, El Canada pushed aside science altogether. We just know more about science. I mean, over the years, we've actually learned uh, a great deal about food. And, and, and people may think that, that, that science is an absolute. It's certainly not in food. I mean, uh, you know the debate between margarine and butter. I mean, it's been yep. going for years. Uh, and just because of the research, sometimes we actually discover things that lead us to believe that perhaps we got it wrong. And it's absolutely quite healthy to do that. But right now, uh, there is some... There is a strong consensus uh, around plant-based dieting. Uh, let's face it, and and and, it, and this is something that the Health Canada is embracing over the last couple of years, and is is likely to uh, to give it some attention in the next food guide. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about food, the food guide, in fact that has had for, well, since 1942, as you just heard, four groups, vegetables and fruit, grain products, milk and alternatives, meat and alternatives. Now, we know more, apparently. We're going to a food guide of 28 foods. Good luck remembering that. Poor kids. Back when we were in elementary school and had to learn this, you had to learn four. You probably could pass. Even now, you probably could pass. I don't know about the kids now having to learn 28 of these and trying to figure out which one of the legumes they get into, which one of their groups and all the rest. Anyway, uh, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie University, an expert in food distribution, food security, food safety, joins us. And doctor, one of the things just before the break I pointed out and I and can't help but notice when you look at the existing four item food guide is at least two of them and maybe three 
have a very strong, very powerful lobby in this country. The dairy uh, industry has a very powerful lobby. The meat industry, the beef industry has a very powerful lobby. Has that had anything to do with the fact that they have remained on the food guide or that that's been something that they've stuck around for a long time? Or is that a complete coincidence? (laughs) Is that a rhetorical question? Would that mean yes? Uh, Listen, I, I would say, I mean, food politics are alive and well in Canada. Uh, I mean, when you, when you talk about food, when you talk about uh, anything, really, uh, voices uh, are listened to, whether it's in Ottawa or elsewhere. Uh, I mean, some groups have been highly influential and active. And, of course, uh, back in October 2017, when... When, uh, when Health Canada uh, published its principles for the next food guide, uh, it actually excluded these lobby groups from the process, by the way. And, uh, and so that came as a surprise. And I would say that over the last 12 months, there's, there's been a lot of visitors in Ottawa. And, <laughs> uh, and a lot of these yeah. groups have been to Ottawa several times to voice their, their concerns about what's happening right now. Uh, I'm actually going to be flying out uh, tomorrow to Calgary and meet some cattle producers, and uh, and I would say that the majority of them are uh, not overly concerned or perhaps even in denial uh, with what's going on, just because they believe that the Canadian Food Guide actually doesn't matter. Well, one of the, as I've been reading about this, it seems that the one of, of, of these four, the one that seems to be the most likely to take a bit of a hit, if you want to call it that, is the dairy side of things. And it seems ironic to me that at the time, it's how, how many months ago was it that our government and the states and Mexico were in this free trade discussion? And the whole thing seemed to be how we were going to protect our dairy industry. We were willing to throw away the trade deal to protect our dairy industry, and now we're going to step back, I guess, and say, yeah, but dairy's not that important in the food guide by the sounds of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's a, there's a dairy paradox. When it comes to, to public policy in Canada, there's a dairy paradox. On the one hand, we have this highly protectionist system called supply management, and the principle of supply management is to produce what we need. So we have quotas, and we are asking 11,000 dairy farmers to produce the milk we need, and, and they're paid, uh, they're compensated uh, accordingly. On the other hand, we're about to see a federal agency asking Canadians to drink less milk. <laughs> so how does that work with, with the with the value of quotas out there, uh, family businesses that are relying on the value of these quotas to make a living and, and, and pass on uh, that value onto the next generation. It's, it's just very, very strange. You study food all the time. This is what you do. This is what you're an expert in. Do you believe that when we change the food guide that people's attitudes towards food is going to change, or do you think people are going to yawn and say, whatever? You see, over the last 70 years, we've institutionalized the food guide. What that means, basically, is that we actually learn it. We all learn it in school, and then we forget about it. But it's there. It's in our it's brain somewhere. There. Yeah, it's oh, in our yeah, brain. Absolutely. But, and, that's, uh, but that means we're going to have to change the very thing that we've always thought. And that probably won't happen this generation, then. We're talking a generation down the road. Once you institutionalize that next message, that, a new message... 10, 15, 20 years from now, the food market in Canada will be very, very different. 
And the, the irony of that is that by that point, some scientists will probably find that there's something better for us than the new 28 food food guide, and we'll have to change it again. <laughs> Here's a novelty for you. The next food guide is likely going to encourage Canadians to drink water. Huh? Is water a food? Is <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Discuss well, among yourselves. I mean, it, it's going to be about lifestyle. I mean, Health Canada is going to encourage people to cook, not to eat alone and things like that. And this is something we're seeing around the world. So we're catching up to the rest of the world, really. Will, will, as I let you go, will one of the 28 things on the new food guide be cannabis edibles? <laughs> Maybe on the flip side, who knows? <laughs> Do- Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, always love having you on. Thanks for taking the time today. All right, take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Bob O'Neill from CHCH, just in case you're uh, joining us and I forgot to introduce you. I can't remember if I said who we were talking to or not. A week from now, Bubba, we are going to know who is going into baseball's Hall of Fame. And the reason we're talking about this today is because the way that this is done, it's always been the baseball writers of America. So if you are, if you've covered baseball, if you've been a beat writer for 10 years, you qualify to vote for this. In the past, it's always been very secretive. Today, all the guys and women, there's some women, it's growing, but they are now having their ballots public and many of them are now as they submit them they're posting them on twitter and showing who they voted for and it's become a very interesting situation this year i'll tell you why the names on here who are the leading candidates for eligibility barry bonds roger clemens roy halliday todd helton jeff kent edgar martinez fred mcgriff mike musina uh, Manny Ramirez, Mariana Rivera, Kurt Schilling, Sammy Sosa, Omar Vizquel, Larry Walker. That's probably the, there's a bunch of other names as well. Those are the guys who are probably at the top of the list. But some of those are now the leading voices, the leading faces, the leading expanded head hat sizes in the steroid era. And they are getting, if you go on Twitter, Bubba, those guys, especially Clemens and Bonds, who were ostracized and left on the sidelines for a while, tons of votes. They're both very close to getting in this time. Are you okay with that? Yeah, of course I am. I mean, Barry Bonds, I think, is at 56%. um, And Roger Clemens is at 57%. And over the years, I guess it's about six or seven years they've been on the ballot now, there's been a steady rise, which I think it started at 35. Yeah, let me just jump in for a sec, because there was uh, someone has been tabulating all the ones that have been posted. And as we sit here today, Roger Clemens is at 73.1%, and Barry Bonds is at 72.6%. You've got to get 75 to get in. So both of them are very possibly going into the Hall of Fame this year. Yeah, I would I would I'm going to I'm going to predict that they go in next year. That there'll be one more and I, and the only reason why I say that is cuz I I can think of the guys that I believe are going to go in for sure. I think Edward, Edgar Edgar Martinez, you know, based on him being one of the arguably the the greatest designated hitter if you ever say such a thing. Um I think and he, I think he was at 70.4 last year. So he was just sniffing it. I think Andy Pettit will be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Mm. I think Mariano Rivera will yes. also be a first yep. ballot Hall of Famer. And I think there's a very good argument to put Mark, Mike Mussina in there as well, too. 270 wins when I think about him. Um, and So where we stand right now, by the way, with this person, again, who co- has collated all the numbers so far that have come in, 
Mariano Rivera is on 100% of the ballots that have been made public so far. No one has ever got in unanimously, not even Babe Ruth. Roy Halladay was at 94.3. Edgar Martinez was at 90.3. And Mike Mussina was at 81.7. So all four of those guys look like they are going in for sure. Now, I'm trying to remember, is there a restriction number on, I, I mean, like, I think the National Hockey League is like four or no, five, whatever. No, guys can vote, people, voters can vote for 10, but if, and I think if you do the math, uh, I think you probably could only have like 12 then based on 75%, but there, you're never going to have 12 people. You might have six this year. Uh, I, I, that may happen, and because... I think it was an interview I heard with Cito Gaston, and they and he was asked. I mean, obviously he would be in the know and and managed during a time where you know the, the steroid era was very prominent, um, and even played when steroids probably weren't known about, but when they might have been actually been going on in the major leagues and all levels of baseball. Is that he he truly believes that both of those players will be in at some point, and I believe a lot of the backlash that came was more of a spiteful punishment. To those players. Well, how does it? How is it spiteful to say that if you cheated, you don't go in? Well, I think there were some grudges based on the personality of those guys, and I'm and I'm not just. I mean, yeah, obviously there's the 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 drug thing, but at the end of the day, and I know you and I have discussed this before, you can have the you can hold your moral, you know, uh, thoughts above your head here because at the time when these guys were taking whatever they were taking, uh, as what they were truly believing to be you know, performance-enhancing drugs, but performance enhancers for themselves and their bodies to make them last the season, to be healthy, to regain their strength. This was allowed in baseball, and we cannot ignore that fact. I mean, morality has nothing to do with this, or there would be a whole bunch of people in every Hall of Fame that would be that would lose, you know, there, O.J. Simpson wouldn't be in the Football Hall of Fame, right? Okay. So we can't wave our moral high horse here. What those guys were taking at the time was not, um, they, were, were, they weren't prohibited. So, so you and I disagree on this, I, and I, I strongly feel the other way. That's fine. But here's part of the reason now where I find the discussion of this particularly difficult in this Hall of Fame ballot. Because if Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens are both right on the precipice of going in and a fair chunk, Roger Clemens' career was all would have been probably over back in when he was still with Boston if he had not stumbled upon this stuff and it revitalized his career. It got him back to health and got him back to strength and he was able to keep going. Barry Bonds, we don't know. He was a great player before he took it. But one of the guys on this ballot who there was never a whiff of suggestion that he ever took stuff. And if you look at his body at the beginning of his career and at the end of his career, unlike the guys who took it and bulked up heavily, his body looked basically exactly the same is Fred McGriff. Fred McGriff right now is sitting at 36% on the Hall of Fame ballot. And I'm looking at this saying, okay, so if I'm going to vote in Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens for the career they had knowing that they took stuff, and Fred McGriff didn't take stuff, but if he had taken stuff, instead of 493 home runs, he might have had 600 home runs. How do Most guys are leaving him off the ballot. It's almost like now he's being penalized for not taking it. Is he pe- being penalized? Uh, be honest, Scott, okay? And, and, I, and I mean this sincerely. And, and for me, and, and everyone's different, 
when I think of Hall of Fame players, the first thing that comes to my mind is, did I ever once say, oh my goodness, this is the greatest player in the game? Or, man, this guy's a Hall of Famer. Or, man, that guy deserves a Cy Young. Or, how many batting titles did he win? That would be my first thought for a Hall of Famer. And there's nothing wrong with being a very good player or to say, you know what, that guy was a darn good major leaguer. And I put Fred McGriff in that category. But never at any time, and this includes his period as a Blue Jay, did I ever think to myself, wow, Fred McGriff is going to the Hall of Fame. He's spectacular. And I'm not being sarcastic. No, no. I'm being being honest here. And I would put two points on that one. One of them is that there are certain numbers, statistical numbers, that even though you're correct, even though you're correct about the judgment of, is this person one of the best players ever, there have been historically certain benchmarks that have been guarantees that you would get in. And 500 home runs has always been a surefire number that would put you in. He had 493, which again goes to my point. He must be an idiot then for not taking steroids, because I guarantee you that if he had bulked up on steroids, that guy has over 500 home runs. The second point is, you had argued a moment ago, and I think with some merit, that Mike Mussina, with his 270 wins, should be in the Hall of Fame. I don't think Mike Mussina very often was ever seen as the best pitcher in baseball. He was a very good pitcher, but he was never the best guy, but he stayed around and he worked know, at it. Scott. The guy won 270 games. I, that's and, right, and, and he played and, a long and time, and he, he did won, well. He won seven. He, I mean, he was a great defensive player as a pitcher as well, too. won seven gold gloves. I mean, he was the staff ace of, the ball, of some very good uh, Baltimore Orioles teams that went to the playoffs based on his abilities. Uh, I believe he started a couple of all-star games and maybe even would have started one more if it wasn't for, for Cito Gaston. I would definitely say he was one of the better pitches of, of his era. Uh, look, I, I'm not going to argue. I, I say that Fred McGriff, though, be, is, based on the power numbers and based on the things that have generally always been the guidelines for getting in, mm-hmm. meets that. Now, let me jump to another one. We'll leave the steroids for just a minute because I know everyone's going to be talking about this one for weeks and weeks and <clears throat> weeks, especially it's already been made clear by a whole bunch of Hall of Famers that if the steroid guys get in, they're not showing up for the induction, which is going to be a real interesting one if that ends up happening. So we'll have lots of time to talk about that one. You mentioned Edgar Martinez. Edgar Martinez, as and you said, one of the great designated hitters, or great you know des- hitters as a designated hitter, if you can say that. Most people, even though he's improving, Larry Walker is still well off the pace. He's down around 66% to get in. Larry Walker, who may be penalized because he pay, played in Montreal and then in Colorado, two small markets and one of them with uh, with adi- uh, altitude, not attitude, altitude. <laughs> yeah. uh, but he won something like seven or eight gold gloves as well as being a terrific hitter. Right. Edgar Martinez only hit, didn't do anything defensively, was a great hitter. Again, I'm looking at this saying, how do you possibly check off the boxes for Martinez, who was a one-dimensional player, when a fantastic two-dimensional player doesn't get nearly the same number of votes? These things don't make sense to me. Well, he's a one-dimensional player because the game allowed it to. Yes, There's one of two leagues that allow for a player not to be in the field, and that's not his fault. The guy was a tremendous hitter. Uh, and obviously put up you know uh, you know lifetime achievement uh, you know numbers if you want to put it that way if we're, and I think we can sort of agree on that but he was a tremendous hitter again with Larry Walker in my opinion fantastic player not a Hall of Famer and here's another reason why 
you and I and I brought up you know longevity as as something that is very important. Larry Walker had a tremendous amount, a history of injuries that limited his playing abilities and basically perhaps cut his career short. Had he played a little bit longer, had he probably not had the injury issues, I believe that he would have put up the numbers necessary to make a stronger argument for him to be in the Hall of Fame. I'm just, as we're typing here, I'm just doing a search for the comparison of Edgar Martinez and Larry Walker, because I believe, if I'm correct, that their, their career numbers are very, very similar. So Larry Walker's lifetime batting average was 313. Mm-hmm. Edgar Martinez was 312. Larry Walker hit 383 home runs. Edgar hit 309. Larry Walker had 1,311 RBI. Edgar Martinez had 1,261. And Larry Walker throws in eight gold gloves. How, as a voter, but, but, do you but, not but, say but you, he you're, was you're, the you're better player? You're comparing apples to oranges here. Because one was a, a, an everyday player in, in the field and the out of the field. And, I mean, if we were going to do comparisons to that, then you, you, you might even want to go as far as saying, well, why is Lee Smith in, in the Hall? Like, what, you mean, relievers, they should, maybe they should never be in the Hall of Fame if we're going to compare. You know what I'm saying? It's a positional sort of thing. Uh, it is a positional sort of thing, except I, again, if you're going to go into the Hall of Fame, you have to be one of the best players. I don't believe, I think Edgar Martinez was one uh, of the best bad, batters. What are the ba- uh, sorry? I think he was one of the best batters. I'm not sure. And this is, you know what, this discussion is going to come up in three years or two years with uh, David Ortiz, with Big Poppy. is does he go into the Hall of Fame? Now, I think most people are going to say, sure, he goes into the Hall of Fame. I think without question. I think that will probably happen almost certainly. Again, I, the, I think I think the sensitivity that we're all experiencing right now for this exact situation of especially guys that are you know designated hitters. I think by the time David Ortiz is is coming up, and I guess that'd be two years from now. I don't even think this will be a question. Now, because, David or well, David Ortiz, we will, we will have come to a full acceptance that Hall of Fame players also can be designated hitters. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm trying to remember, was David Ortiz mentioned in the Mitchell report? Um, I can't remember. Remember, it angered him. He was tremendously insulted and angered because although he was never listed, his name was rumored to be in the sealed document. Oh, okay. If you remember it, it made him extremely angry. He got very defensive about it, but he was never called to to the jury, uh, never spoke, um, and for a portion of his career there, every time his name was, you know, associated with it, um, because there was a belief his name was in that sealed document, that he was, uh, you know, that he was infuriated by the whole thing. What will happen again in a few years from now? What is going to happen with Alex Rodriguez? I think he falls into the same category as as Barry Bonds and 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 Roger Clemens, although. His angle is somewhat different in the fact that he's come to terms with what he did and basically admitted to what he did on two occasions. And we are very forgiving as people. Uh, voters can be spiteful, uh, but they, in the end of the day, they forgive. And we're going to see that with, with Andy Pettit. Let me ask you one more I mean, thing. I mean, Andy Pettit. Andy Pettit took stuff. You're right. He took yeah. human growth hormone. To rec- he said to recover from an injury. Right. You can believe him, you can not believe him, but that was his defense, that it was to help him get back on the field. 
Right. So I believe that uh, with Alex Rodriguez, I mean, you know, put this aside here. Alex Rodriguez is arguably the one of the best. For me, arguably the one of the best infielders I've ever seen in my life. Best players. Yeah. As as I would say the same thing with Barry Bonds. I don't know if anyone has put got me out of my seat as many times as Barry Bonds did uh, throughout his career. Okay, but, let me ask you one more, which is which again goes to me to the I don't get where voters are coming from on this then. Because if you can be forgiving of Roger Clemens and and Barry Bonds, and I think forgiving is the right word because they, as I say, they were left off or left out of many people's ballots for a long time. If you can then say it's time to put Bonds and Clemens into the Hall of Fame, uh, I go here to Sammy Sosa, who has 609 home runs, 234 stolen bases, 1,667 RBI, Ar- uh, Hall of Fame numbers by any standard of any era, mm-hmm. and Sammy Sosa is at 13.7%. Tell me what the difference is between Sammy Sosa and Barry Bonds at, that would separate them by that many votes. And here's and, and, and that's a great question, Scott, but here's my belief on that. And the reason why I think there is such a discrepancy in the numbers is because exactly what I said in the very beginning. Sammy Sosa had an incredible surge of home run power late in his career, and then, you know, the stuff with you know the drugs and all the the, the with the stuffing of the bat the the um the bat um yeah yeah I know yeah, what you mean the uh, yeah corking of the bat with the corking of the bat and all that kind of stuff. Regardless, because I don't think he put up those incredible numbers, but it, it sounds crazy to say he put up those great numbers in the back half of his career. But again, never did we say, my goodness, is he the best outfielder in baseball? Ooh, I don't know. What, but during those McGuire years, what, when he yeah, and McGuire were going of, for it? Because of his bat, yes. when was Sammy Sosa ever great in the outfield? No, but you just said with Larry Walker, you don't have to be. I, my thing with Larry Walker is injuries and, and games played. Unfortunately, I put him so much as what uh, Eric Lindros had to go through. In terms of his hall, I mean, he eventually got in, but again, the argument was didn't play long enough, too many injuries, and that was my thing with Larry Walker. Isn't this fun? Isn't this fun? I'm glad I'm not. I'm glad I'm not a voter. I'm glad I'm not a voter. But I, I, as I say, the thing about this Bubba that I really find weird about this year's ballot is that in the in the last number of years, when the steroid guys have really not been taken seriously. It was, oh, you could work your way through and try and see where most of the voters' minds were. This year, I really don't understand a lot of the thought process behind a lot of these votes of who's getting them and who isn't. It, it, is, a, it is a fascinating one, and this is going to be a year I want to hear from some of these voters to explain, again, to me, why, and you make a good argument, but why Sammy Sosa is worth 13% vote and a guy like Barry Bonds is worth 73% or why Edgar Martinez is worth 90%. It, it is to me this thing is all over the map and I don't really understand what's going on this year. But I will I will say this about these guys and again I'll maintain again in that in that comparison when I watched Barry Bonds as a baseball player I thought he was a tremendous baseball player. I think Sammy Sosa was a tremendous hitter of the baseball. Um, and and unfortunately again he played in the National League. So that's a little bit different. He never, if he was just a DH, I might think differently. 
but he played in the field as well too. And I don't think he was a very good fielder with, with the Cubs or even the Expos or or any of his days. Um, it's a great argument, Scott. But I will always say this too, that and I kind of alluded to it earlier with Clements and Bonds because they are the poster boys for this argument for the most part because you know they are arguably the greatest players of their position ever. Is that people were angry with them, and I'm talking about media members. Not so much because of the drugs, it's because of the way they were and the, the possible attitudes that they have. Because there we go. Andy Pettit, great guy, approachable, fun, a winner, but did the same thing that Clements and Bonds did. But he admitted to it, was, rem- was remorseful, even, I, if I remember correctly, cried on uh, at the podium for, for, for acceptance from baseball. But those guys never did. So, and Andy Pettit right now at six point nine percent, six point nine percent. So he he's he looks very well. He's not going in this year anyway. Look, we got to run. It is a fascinating one. What I am going to be so interested. I, I actually do hope that Clemens or Bonds gets in this year. I think you're probably right. It may be next year, but one of them might squeak in. I'll be really interested to see if the other Hall of Famers who have talked about this follow through and say, those guys are in, we're not showing up. Because now, for the media people like us, man, you've got a story. You have got a story if all the greats of the game, or many of them, say, if you're going in, I'm having nothing to do with Cooperstown anymore. This is now a huge problem for the Hall of Fame, even though it's not really the Hall of Fame's issue. It's not their decision, but they're going to wear this, and they have got some tap dancing to do to try and make some beds and make some friends here. But listen, we'll talk about that down the road. Uh, you got to go get your weather and sports ready for the 11 o'clock newscast. we got a big storm coming for Saturday. You can start preparing. Oh, don't talk about snow. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. You can watch him tonight. Thanks for doing this, my friend. Oh, it was a pleasure, bud. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.